It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Steve updates us on the latest Firefox, plus the trouble with iOS version 8, and Steve answers your questions. It's Q&A number 202. Stick around. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 484, recorded December 2nd, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 202. This episode is brought to you by Jack Irwin. Jack Irwin sells men's shoes made from the finest materials at honest prices, and they ship them right to your door. Check out their shoe collections at jackirwin.com slash twit. That's jackirwin.com slash twit. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at carbonite.com. No credit card required. Use offer code SECURITYNOW and get two bonus months with purchase. And by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for IT operations and developers to ensure that the right engineers are notified at the right time. Increase your uptime and sign up for a 14-day free trial at pagerduty.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, the show where we cover privacy, security, and so much more, including coffee. And we'll be hopefully talking about coffee here today (laughs) uh, at some point. How are you doing, Steve? Hey, well, everybody knows you're not the voice of Leo. You're kidding. uh, Mike, it's great to be with you this week. We will uh, we'll do a Q&A uh, and everything will be just fine. <laughs> I, I'll believe it when I see it. I hope I don't wreck the show. Uh, uh, Leo's off today and I'm stepping in. I always listen to this show, so it's really great to actually host the show with you. And, and, and this is just going to be awesome. So why don't we just launch into the show? Well, so we have a Q&A uh, this week. We've, we've, uh, don't have a ton of news. I want to talk about... Uh, some new features in the just-released version 34 of Firefox. Um, uh, and and to sort of tease next week's deep dive episode, I thought I was going to talk about the research into de-anonymizing Tor. Uh, and I've decided we'll call that one Detour. Um, <laughs> but it's there, it's it ended up being so interesting and cool that I thought, okay, this is this is worth a whole podcast. So that'll be next week. Then we have a bunch of, I mean, nothing really happened in the last week, although we've had a couple of very busy weeks before that. So we have a bunch of interesting miscellaneous stuff and it's a Q&A episode number 202. So we've got uh, 10 interesting and uh, some thought-provoking questions from our listeners that we're going to cover. Fantastic. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's sort of uh, odd in our, I try to put some sort of a picture at, on the front page of the show notes every week. And Jenny sent me a picture of the the Newf sisters, the twins that she has. Uh, she and her daughter each have one uh, named Paris and uh, Beluga. Um, and I didn't realize it until she commented that they both have their front paws crossed, which was the impetus for taking the picture. Apparently, this is something that Newfoundlands do. Uh, Jenny is a serial Newfoundland owner. And uh, so they took the picture because both dogs were all both pups were sitting there with their right paws crossed over their left. I mean, this wasn't staged. This was just 
candid. Um, but we have a, a sponsor who we don't have uh, this week, but Leo introduced them last week, BarkBox. And one was sent to me, which I then dropped off uh, with Jen, and the pups got a big kick out of it. So yeah. uh, we will, I'll we'll talk, I'll, I'll, I will share Jenny's reaction and theirs, actually, uh, when we next uh, have BarkBox as a sponsor. But that explains why there's a couple dogs on the, <laughs> <laughs> on the front page of the show notes. Whereas normally we have, you know, schematics of networking diagrams and boxes interconnected to stuff or bar charts showing scary infection rates across the globe. Now we've got, you know, noofs staring at the camera saying, can, can we eat that? Anyway, and so, crossing their paws. Uh, it's amazing. And crossing their paws, as apparently noofs are want to do. Um, so uh, uh, we're going to talk. We're, we're, next week's topic will be detour. Uh, and I'll just say that um, the reason it's worth talking about is that stats have been generated by a researcher who who believes that anyone who sufficiently wanted to, could de-anonymize more than 80%. I think the number that I remember was 84% of of supposedly anonymized Tor traffic um, using some features of Cisco routers. Um, And, you know, that's a high enough number. It's not like maybe they could get lucky, but, you know, that's a big number. And we do know, if nothing else, post-Snowden revelations, that organizations like the NSA really do, really would want to be able to provide de-anonymizing service for Tor. So uh, definitely worth talking about next week. And we will get it. We'll do one of our wind up your propeller cap episodes Nice. Uh, yeah. So we just got a new drop of uh, Firefox version 34. The The biggest thing you see, um, which had been covered, I think it was mentioned maybe a couple weeks ago, is that Firefox for the first time is no longer using Google as their default search engine. Um, if you already have, if you're upgrading from Firefox, it doesn't boot you out, but it introduces and sort of suggests that let's all switch to Yahoo. Well, okay. Now I have no experience with Yahoo, but I'm not switching. I'm staying with, with Google. So as I understand it, um, Google has been a sponsor of Mozilla for, for like for a long time. Um, is this the? Do you know what's behind this, Mike? Is this the ascendance of Chrome as like competition? Has Google pulled their sponsorship of of Firefox? Do, I, do you I know have the fe- well, I have the feeling that uh, that Yahoo paid dearly for this. Um, and you know, the, the other thing ah. that's interesting about it is the length of the contract. I think this was a five year contract, where I think the old Google contract was a three year contract. I think it's pretty standard for money to change hands for these things. But I just think that Yahoo's desperate and hungry. Well, and, you know, we, we do see more Yahoo stuff in the news. So I think you're right. I think they're clearly pushing wherever they can to make some inroads. And uh, uh, um, so the default search engine changes. But if you're already at Google, you're not kicked out. Um, they've expanded search features. Oh, I, I ought to mention also that for Belarusian, uh, uh, Kazakhstan and Russian locales, 
the search engine has changed to Yandex, Y-A-N-D-E-X, so as opposed to uh, Yahoo. So it's not a, a global change. Uh, they haven't. They have improved the search bar. Um, they've also got now their they a real time chat client called Hello is built into Firefox. So that's that's you know part of the the uh, the standard build now. Uh, it's also possible in 34 to easily switch themes and personas uh, directly in the customizing mode. Um, oh, and they're now noticing that if you're using Wikipedia search, it defaults to HTTPS. So it sort of upgrades your search privacy for you uh, when you're searching uh, in the uh, U.S. Wikipedia. They've, um, they have an early implementation of HTTP slash 2, which is based on Speedy that we talked about a long time ago. Speedy was the, sort of an experimental next generation HTTP um, alternative that Google was experimenting with, has been for years. Um, and also ALPN support is there. That's the application layer protocol negotiation that allows application layer security to be negotiated by connections. So anyway, so th- this is just sort of um, early standard stuff moving forward that Mozilla is is staying right up with. Um, uh and they also said that you can now recover from a locked a locked Firefox process in the quote Firefox is already running dialogue under Windows. I've I mean I'm Firefox is my browser. I I live in it and I've never encountered that. So I don't know when that happens, but if it does, you can now recover from it. Oh, and interestingly, they have disabled SSL version 3. Uh, in in the Firefox client. So Firefox will no longer support version 3 of SSL. Um, it will be at t- formerly TLS now, uh, 1.0, 1.1, and 1.2. So, and that's, of course, because we've had recent problems uh, with the security of, of SSL version 3. So, you know, neat that they're doing that. And I imagine my, that Windows will ultimately... Uh, my, you know, Microsoft with IE will get around to that at some point, which is a good thing to do. Probably take them a and, while, though. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. It'll, it won't be anytime soon. Yeah. Um, and just sort of on the developer side, lots of motion forward on the HTML5 standard, um, mostly in the web crypto area. I saw just a ton of new uh, web crypto APIs that have support. Um, and I, I think that's uh, good overall. So uh, that's really all the news we have. Um, I, I hear Leo and Sarah talking about iOS version 8. And I've been meaning to say for a while that the iOS 8 bugs are just driving me crazy. I mean, it's sad that I, I don't know. Are you a, an iOS or an Android person? I, I'm on a- iOS now. I moved from Android uh, to the iPhone 6 Plus, And so I'm back on iOS. And yeah, it's uh, it's. Kind of surprising, isn't it? It really is. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, Jobs would just be well. I mean, heads would be rolling if yeah. this was going on at Microsoft with 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 Steve still at the helm. Um, all kinds of obscure things. A lot of them seem to be keyboard related. You know, I'm a big fan of swipe and swift key. That's just a a win on those touch screens. Um, but I'm seeing 
like new creative ways that they are finding to fail. Uh, just this morning, I could see like j- just the upper maybe 25% of the keyboard skewed off to the side. It was like, okay, what the heck? Um, and, and, but even, even non-keyboard things, the calendar app had the December month like ghosted like three times in, in like some sort of a rendering error and just all kinds of obscure things. That's, it is, um, not only surprising, but it's, you know, disappointing because we, we, we depend upon this and we'd like to have a reliable appliance. So anyway, I, 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 I listened to Leo and Sarah sometimes saying, what is going on? And I just wanted to say, yeah, believe me, you guys are not alone. Um, Everybody is seeing it. And there was an interesting article in the Washington Post. Um, I'm also hearing Leo and as it was, Leo and Sarah was, was, were talking yesterday. Uh, You know, Leo is no fan of Twitter. You probably have heard him, uh, Mike, you know, (laughs) talking about just what a catastrophe he feels it is. Um, Anne Applebaum wrote a nice piece uh, that I just that I I'm linking to in the show notes that I wanted to just point our listeners to um, the first just the first couple paragraphs to give our our listeners a sense for it reads uh, and Anne writes if you're reading this article on the internet stop afterward and think about it okay so she's saying you know read the article think about it then scroll to the bottom and read the commentary if there isn't any. Try a website that allows comments, preferably one that is political. Then recheck your views. And so what she's saying is, you know, read what's posted and, and, and wait, you know, assess it. Make, make up your own mind. Then read the comments and see what you now think. She says, chances are your thinking will have changed especially if you have read a series of insulting, negative, or mocking remarks, as so often you will. Once upon a time, it seemed as if the Internet would be a place of civilized and open debate. Now, unedited forums often deteriorate to insult exchanges. Like it or not, this matters. Multiple experiments have shown that perceptions of an article, its writer or its subject can be profoundly shaped by anonymous online commentary, especially if it is harsh. One group of researchers found that rude comments, quote, and this is the, the, from the research, not only polarized readers, but they often changed a participant's interpretation of the news story itself. A digital analyst at Atlantic Media also discovered that people who read negative comments were more likely to judge that an article was of low quality and, regardless of the content, to doubt the truth of what it stated. Anyway, I just I just think this is a, a fascinating aspect of what's going on with the Internet now that, you know, absolutely relates to, to Leo's current angst with Twitter. Um, and, and I've experienced it. Um, there are, you know, there are, uh, for example, about Squirrel, there are some people who didn't understand what I had created and put up some early blog postings um, that that are critical of it, which I have, are fine if 
if people would understand the context for that. And, and one of the problems is that I guess people who don't have a firm sense of their own ability to make up their mind sort of inherently defer to others. And so people will read, as Anne notes, criticism and get hugely swayed, you know, and I end up finding myself having to defend against somebody with no credentials at all who's raised some concerns that that actually aren't problems at all. I mean, the person's completely wrong, but it scares people. And we see this happening all over the Internet in all kinds of uh of instances. So it, anyway, I the, she the, that's just the front of a really thought-provoking piece that uh if people are interested in this in the subject, I really would commend them to to take a look at. Um and she she wonders toward the end whether anonymity is is for all of its benefits and the 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 power and and enabling that it creates on the internet, if that's not part of the problem. And I wonder, and certainly I would never suggest that the that people lose the right to be anonymous if they choose, but sort of in the same way that, that uh, Twitter, to use the example, has the option to verify the identity of Twitter accounts. You know, Leo has a little check mark. you know, he's a verified identity. Um, people have told me I should do that. I just haven't gotten around to it um but maybe that's the solution is to to allow people to to have an authenticated identity if they choose or to be you know anonymous oddly named creatures uh if they don't uh but anyway i thought this that this was just a, an interesting piece that that came across it well, is, what, it is what do you think about yeah, it is thing? interesting and I've, I've had some multiple conversations with leo about this uh and um and and my own view is that I think that anonymity is okay as long as the communications medium you're using enables the person who starts the conversation to delete uh, any any comment below that conversation and then block that person from being able to come in uh, later on. There are some social networks that allow that and others that don't. Twitter is where a lot of the problems exist simply because on Twitter you have no such power. Any tweet, whether it's a response to an initial tweet or not, is equal to every other tweet uh, for the most part. So, for example, let's say you posted something on Twitter uh, uh, about Squirrel and then a bunch of people commented on it. And let's say somebody was saying all kinds of things that weren't true and they were being just deliberately malicious or whatever the uh, the case may be. And And on Twitter, there's literally nothing you can do about it. Everyone involved in that conversation who's paying attention will see their comments and your rebuttals as equal and you can block them if you want but if you block them you're simply putting your own head in the sand and those comments are going on without any control on your part right. whereas on other right. social networks you can go in there and literally delete the comments and so the conversation that you started you have sort of stewardship of that conversation and you're you, still able to curate it exactly yeah. and i think that's one uh, part of the solution i i i you know, I, I don't mean to be super anti-Twitter because Twitter is great in so many ways. And, of course, we tech journalists love Twitter uh, almost universally. But there's a structural is issue about Twitter that leads to this kind of misinformation. Uh, it, it's probably the worst place there is online to have an, a conversation. It's funny. I was I was uh, speaking of, you know, you were talking about journalists. I heard or I, I was watching some interviews of 
of some young, you know, hip internet enabled journalists uh, a couple days ago. Uh, and these were like on the East Coast, but they were involved in the financial markets. And these were like, you know, the people who sleep with their iPhone, like, you know, holding it so they can, they'll be awakened by it vibrating, you know, and they're just so connected to the net. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, <laughs> that's a little too much. But, but they both said that the first thing they do when they wake up is check Twitter. Because, because, and, and like specific feeds, because they need, they're, they're, they're literally, they're, they're, they're anxious about the fact that they've been unconscious for six hours, God help them. And they, they, as fast as possible, they need to come up to speed due to the nature of their jobs on what happened during the, the six hours that their body forced them to be unconscious. And I, and I just thought, okay, well, yeah, I don't want your job. But uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's irreplaceable, as you said, but the, the absolute fa the absolute nature of the fact that it's uh, just such a uh, wild zone uh, also creates a problem. Yeah, it's a it's a troll's paradise. Yeah, the you know, I like the idea of being able to curate a conversation. You start the of course, the flip side is. You really need to be a mature curator because you know what it, you, you're also able to go too far and curate a dialogue so that it you know it looks like you're walking on water. If people are raising issues which are good ones, then you know if if, if you don't have the, the the strength to allow you know useful debate rather than just you know trolling, then. Uh, you know, then then this notion of you you having control of the dialogue can be taken too far. I did note that, and Anne talks about this. There are confirmed reports of of paid organizations deliberately spamming competitors' blogs and you know uh, feeds and like you know each political party, for example, in, in in an environment where there are multiple parties, hiring organizations to to plant negative information in the in their competitors or their their opponents uh social environment because for exactly this fact unfortunately negative stuff you know has a strong uh, you know, high level of traction so yeah it certainly does and it's for exactly the reason they're talking about in this article this this sort of astroturfing works and that's why yeah. uh, political parties do it and also china does it and russia does it too in fact there was a, a, a story in the news uh, over the weekend the, the new york times book review podcast was talking uh, interviewing uh, the author of a book about putin and and uh, the the putin kleptocracy i don't recall the name of of the uh, the book but it was a new book that was coming out and and she was saying that you know she was shocked that the so-called 50 ruble army which is what they call it it's basically named after the 50 cent army of china which is where they pay commenters to promote the Kremlin and, and oppose its critics uh, on message boards all over the world. Uh, they were silent. She was saying that they, they didn't jump in and, and, and uh, talk about this. I posted a little thing on Google Plus about the fact that she mentioned that the 50-ruble army wasn't there. And guess what? The 50-ruble army came rushing in and just <laughs> polluted 
the comments <laughs> with just crazy talk is exactly as she described it. She she was asked to describe what sorts of things, what sort of techniques the 50-ruble army uses to sort of block out rational conversation. And that's exactly what happened on my own message board. So that was kind of funny. But, yeah, it, it's this is the tragic thing. It works, and over time, more and more organizations, governments, parties, companies are discovering that they can influence public opinion through this kind of uh, fake grassroots commentary. Wow. We, uh, you know, GRC maintains a bunch of of old school uh, NNTP uh, news groups. And it's just, it's an amazingly valuable resource. And years ago, you could post to the news groups through a web interface. And during the time when I was stirring up some controversy over my, my you know, railing against Microsoft for having the raw socket interface left in what was going to be, go, which was going from Windows 2000 server, it was going to then become Windows XP. And I, you know, begged Microsoft not to leave the raw sockets API in a consumer operating system. Fine to have it in a server. Don't put it in a consumer operating system because raw sockets at, on the application level gives too much um, attack power. And it wasn't until Service Pack 2 that they finally understood what I was saying. Actually, the MS blast worm that attacked them used XP's raw sockets to blast them with an attack that they couldn't defend against. Fortunately, it was aimed at the wrong... Uh, the wrong URL, so they were able to to duck that. But the point is, my taking that position was controversial, and the the news groups, uh, GRC's news groups, were just overwhelmed with just junk. I mean, just garbage posts. People who weren't informed, who were just on the bandwagon, enjoying making noise, and it was it was somebody else who in in the, who'd been a long standing participant who noticed from the headers that it was the it was the web interface that was the source of all of this not people who had taken the time to set up a formal nntp newsreader and so i shut down i made the web interface read only and the problem just went away because you know pe- people were were happy to you know just sort of drive by and drop junk into the forums, but nobody took the time to actually set up a newsreader, and that's been the way it's been ever since. And we just, as a consequence, through that little bit of, you know, a, a little bit of a bar, uh, a little bit of a barrier to entry, we have a paradise of, like, really useful technical uh, discussion on an ongoing basis. So, Wow. So I think part of the problem is it's just so easy to yeah. to to put this stuff up, and you know you 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 have the advantage of anonymity, which again I wouldn't want to take from anybody, but you know as we've been saying, it it does it can get unfortunately abused. Um, we talked, boy, I don't know when it was, um, maybe six months ago, about an interesting movie that uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, Jonathan Schieffer. Uh, had produced called Algorithm. And I wanted to let our listeners know, and I will remind everyone next week also, uh, that on Sunday, this coming Sunday morning, well, midnight, so like 12.01 a.m. Pacific time, 
uh, Jonathan is going to uh, take the movie on YouTube public. Uh, the the URL is in the show notes for anyone who wants it. Um, I'll tweet it on Sunday after it is public because I've already have I've already confused some people who tried to go there and it says this is this is private at the moment. Um, but it's uh yeah <laughs> right you get the the little unhappy confused face uh, if if you go to the link. But um, uh, it's a it's a really interesting technically accurate uh, you know sort of like privately produced. Um, movie um, that uh, that John uh, crowdfunded it crowdfunded in order to produce. Uh, so as soon as it is public, I will tweet it and I'll remind everybody uh, next Tuesday. But if you're anxious to uh, get it before then, you you could do so by um, uh, grabbing the URL from the show notes and checking it out on Sunday. Okay, now this is. Completely off topic, uh, and I was anticipating that I'd be talking to Leo about this. I don't know if do you know anything about uh, Abe and Oddworld? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, Leo and I have spoken about Abe and Abe's Oddworld and Oddworld inhabitants for a decade or more. Um, this, it was a really unique video game. Uh, project, which launched in 1984. Um, uh, A group of computer animation and special effects people up in San Luis Obispo, uh, led by a guy named Lorne Lanning uh, and Sherry McKenna. Um, They were considering... Uh, you know, they 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 were sort of an offshoot of Hollywood doing projects for, for Hollywood. And Lorne and Sherry uh, were seeing each other socially. Uh, Lorne wasn't around when Sherry was hanging out in his living room. And on his coffee table, she saw uh, a, 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 a sheaf of papers. Uh, sort of looked like a screenplay. Uh, that Lorne had put together that he had never mentioned to her. So she starts reading this. And when uh, he came back, she said, what's this? And he said, oh, it, I was just sort of some ideas I was working on for um, maybe a, for a movie. And she looked at him and she said, no, this is our video game. And um, the the I'm talking about this because... Uh, it's coming back. It was on the early consoles, uh, and every time another installment would come out, there was there was Abe's Oddworld, um, Oddworld Exodus, or Abe's Exodus, I think. Then, then the idea was there was going to be a quintology. I think they did only three or four titles. But, and I'm not a video game guy. I mean, I have really no interest in in the whole first person shooter genre except from a from a video technology standpoint i've been fascinated by looking at at the way that technology has evolved what was unique about this and the reason the reason they did something was that it was it was sort of green um th- this little character who was literally a floor polisher worked in it, it, this is all on, on an alien planet, 
worked worked at Rupture Farms, which was a meat packing facility, and uh, and this sort of takes you through. Um, you know his attempt to free all of the uh, free all, all all of his coworkers. Um, it is a it's a it's a puzzle mode game uh, as opposed to a fast reflex fast action sort of game. And I'm I'm just a sucker for puzzle mode stuff. And even though I remember the reviews that just were wild about it, they called it a uh, it was it came out in a time when. We're sort of done with the sort of what's called the horizontal scrollers, where you just sort of scroll horizontally and stuff happens. And this was one, except that it was so well done. The graphics and the animation, I mean, and 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 the background music, you just you just felt like you were in this environment. Leo was completely enthralled. Um, uh, uh, he and his son used to play it all the time. I would lose a couple of weeks of my life every time a new title came out from these guys because that's all I would do was just sit down and say, okay, I have to just take a time out. And, you know, I, I don't ever go on a vacation, so this is my vacation. So what Leo and Sarah talked about yesterday is a um, there is a new title available using a character which, which um, they created toward the end called The Stranger, and this is available on iOS. So they were showing it on iPad Today yesterday uh, called Oddworld Stranger's Wrath, and it is coming soon to Android. But anyone who has a PS4, because uh, it's the only platform, their their remake of the original Abe's Oddworld um, is available for. Uh, if you're interested, uh, check out Abe's Oddworld, the game is called New and Tasty. Uh, currently only on the PS4. It, they are going to be backporting it to the 3 and the PlayStation, uh, the Mac, the uh, PC, uh, and the Xbox One, but it's not available on those platforms yet. And just to give you a sense for it, uh, Escapist gave it a 5 out of 5, Eurogamer a 9 out of 10, Gadget Show a 5 out of 5, PS Nation a 9 out of 10, Maristation a 9 out of 10, Now Gamer a 9 out of 10, and IGN an 8.5 out of 10. I mean, so it's, I, I can't wait to till they get this thing on additional platforms. And I know this is not a podcast about games, but for what it's worth, uh, if you are a person who likes sort of the the puzzle genre um there you you can play some of the videos on their site uh it's odd world inhabitants is the is the formal publisher and you'll immediately get a sense for what they've done um it is really charming and the other thing is that it was always inherently nonviolent, and that's why leo liked it so much and enjoyed sharing it with henry is that this this was you know, this was about doing good and uh, and sort of ecology. And I mean, it's still interesting, uh, but even they were under pressure to do a first person shooter because that's what everyone was wanting, even though they, they were very successful with their puzzle platforms. So this the, the stranger character 
um, shot weird little animals that that did the just instead of like a, a grenade gr- blowing up, it would be some little fur ball that was mostly teeth, you know, and it would buzz around on the bad guys whenever it shot them. So, uh, so even then they tried to to tone it down and keep it from being you know your typical first person shooter game. So anyway, I just for what it's worth. I recommend their all of their content without reservation. Um, and uh, I'll have fun talking to Leo about it uh, when he's back with me. Well, it sounds really cool. I'm going to have to check it out. I just am completely unfamiliar. I'm not a gamer either. Um, yep. I just have there maybe one or two games that I play every now and then. <clears throat> but this sounds really great. I love what you're talking about, how it's like sort of the opposite of Grand Theft Auto. Yes. You know, it's constructive and interesting rather than just blowing people away and... Uh, yeah, it sounds it well, sounds really fascinating. Yeah, well, it has heart. I mean, it's the, the the first of all, these guys are talented uh, graphics artists and designers. So you know, huge amount of 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 just um, uh, emotive content in the game. I mean, it's just, it's just I, I I just can't recommend it highly enough. So if I've managed to tease anybody, go check out Odd World Inhabitants. I was just delighted that they're still around and they're producing content. Um, it it is really unique and uh, uh, and re- really special. In fact, Leo played a video. If anyone's curious, you could get la- uh, yesterday's. That would be December first's iPad today because um, there is a video at the beginning of the game that Leo played uh, that gives you a great sense for, you know, just how good this is. Uh, and again, you know, for, for younger kids uh, and, and for us old people too. That sounds so awesome. I uh, encountered when going through the, the mailbag today, uh, a note uh, which was, uh, it's one of the kinds of things that we hear about Spinrite from time to time that surprises people, and that's because um, it's not always clear when a hard drive is having trouble. So this was from a, a guy, well, I guess a guy, I'm sorry if, you, <laughs> if you're not, uh, all I have is an, for a name is M-A-R-B-L-A, so Marbla or so, something. Marbla. Uh, <laughs> in Poland. Anyway, uh uh, his email was titled Spinrite Saved Chromium Browsers. So he wrote, Hi, Mr. G. Recently, I had some serious issues with the browsers that work with the Chromium engine, Google Chrome, and Opera. He said, Pages did not want to load. Not possible to load settings page, etc. I tried multiple times to uninstall and install the software again. Scan my computer with many antivirus and anti-malware software, but nothing I tried helped. I was forced to use Firefox, and he says, not my favorite, on this particular machine. But finally, I received a strange message from Windows operating system that my hard drive needs attention, as there are a lot of errors. And he says, probably some input from the smart system, question mark. So I launched Spinrite at level two. After a few hours, it showed three red U marks and the system restarted. And yes, Chromium browser now all works perfectly again. 
So sometimes you can't expect what can actually help in your software problem. Thanks and greetings for you and Leo. And Marbla, thank you for sharing your success with Spinrite. Who'd have thought? <laughs> you yeah. picked his chromium. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Indeed. Well, I think what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're, uh, how about we go back to the questions when we come back from our break? Is that how you want to do this, Steve? Yep, perfect. We, will, we got 10 great questions from our listeners. Fantastic. Well, uh, one of our sponsors today is Jack Irwin's, which makes brilliant shoes. You're not going to be barefoot. you got to wear shoes. So you might as well wear really, really nice shoes. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. This is one example. Um, I had a bunch of these. I chose these at random. But if you look at these shoes, these are super high-quality shoes. And you might think these are going to cost you a fortune. I mean, this is good stuff here. Uh, these are essentially classic shoes. They have Oxfords, loafers, wingtips, dress boots. They have all kinds of really high-quality shoes. Sometimes you can spend hundreds of dollars, $800 on a pair of shoes. That's not an unreasonable amount of, of money for a lot of people to spend on shoes. But with Jack Irwin's the shoes don't cost you a fortune. They just look like they cost a fortune. These are the same materials, the same tools, the same craftsmen as the most expensive brands in the world. They have centuries-old tanneries in Italy, France, and artisans in Spain. And if you look closely at the finish, the soles, the upper, and the hand-stitched leather, the quality is definitely there. They cut out the retailers and sell, sell directly to you. Shipping is free. Returns are free. And that's why these shoes, even though they look and are made out of materials and craftsmanship as just like really expensive shoes. They are not expensive. Uh, so buying shoes should be fun. And, of course, with Jack Irwin, it is fun. And it should be an experience that you will remember. And remember, if you're going to get the right fit, Jack Irwins are cut a size big. So, for example, if you wear a size 10 in the United States, make sure you buy size 9. They're, they're one size larger. Hey, the holidays are coming and you want to look your best. Don't wait. Look sharp with a pair of Jack Irwin shoes. Go see the shoes that I showed you here or any of the other shoes at jackirwin.com slash twit. All offerings are limited and change frequently. So get yourself a pair of these brilliant shoes before they sell out. That's jackirwin.com slash twit. And we thank Jack Irwin for their support of Security Now. Well, Steve, we've got some questions here. Why don't we just launch in? I'll, I'll ask you the questions, you answer them, because if you ask the questions and I answer them, people are going to get some <laughs> bad answers. So let's do this right. Uh, let's, that let's, sounds like a plan. All right. So let's start with Ive, Ives Nadu. I'm probably uh, messing up the pronunciation there. Hi, Steve Gibson. I got a domain-level SSL for my blog for 98 cents a year on Cyber Monday. It works so far, but how do I prioritize it over regular HTTP? Well, I, I saw this. I thought this was a really great question because we've been talking recently about the uh, the EFF's uh, pending project uh, due out in the second quarter of 2015 to, for the first time ever, make um, domain level, that is no domain validation, DV certificates available for free by coming up with a clever means of automating the process that allows a server to assert its ownership over a domain name and thus qualify to get certificate protection to basically allow it in, in the same way that it would be having an HTTP conversation to have an HTTPS conversation. When you think about it, I mean, if it's, if it's already able to 
to control an HTTP uh, connection, that is to demonstrate that it that it's that it's the server there, then why not just allow it to secure this the essentially the connections to the same domain that it was that was uh, creating over non-secure. So I just love the idea. So in this case, uh, he's got very inexpensive cert, uh, and everyone uh, in the second quarter of 2015 will be able to get them for free. But the problem is, once you get the certificate, then your server can respond to HTTPS colon slash slash and whatever, but it's doubtless also still going to respond to HTTP. So, so he's saying, okay, you know, I've got the security now. How do I get it used? And so there are a couple things you can do. Um, it is definitely possible to, depending upon what server platform you're using, you know, IIS, Apache, Nginx, whatever, to, to talk to the server administrators. Now, I, he says he has a blog, so I'm assuming that somebody else is running, you know, who knows where. He might, it might be with WordPress, for example. But for you know, taking that as an example, there is a WordPress plugin which you can add to your WordPress installation, which will automatically convert the HTTP links to HTTPS. So, uh, so, so there's that. You can also, uh, in, in the config file for the server, you can redirect any browser that attempts to connect to any URL on your blog from HTTP to HTTPS. Um, that it's just a, it's called an HTTP redirect. So, so those sorts of things you could achieve by contacting the administrator and say, hey, is this a feature that you can offer um, my blog? Um, the, the alternative way is just to start using HTTPS for everything. Um, if there's a, for example, if you're able to edit past blog posts, uh, just go through and change all references to HTTP colon slash slash and your domain and, and blog, change it to HTTPS. Um, you'll want to make sure that all of the explicit HTTP references on the page to your domain are changed. Otherwise, you'll get you'll start getting those mixed content warnings where a secure page also contains unsecured other bits and pieces, pictures and and you know script and so forth. So you'll want to you want to make sure you move the whole thing over, and you can easily test it to make sure that it's not that you're not having a mixed content problem. Um, so really, the the best thing to do is just start using HTTPS ubiquitously, you know, use it everywhere. Um, when you post links to your uh, blog, post them as HTTPS. When you tweet links, tweet them as HTTPS. Um, Google will pick that up and switch itself over. And so it'll start showing your links, you know, preferentially using HTTPS. So you, so you, can, you can sort of do it casually just by using it or if you want to go further, you can enforce it at the server side so that the server 
turns any non-secured query, you know, basically sends back a a response to the client saying, oh, this has moved permanently to, and then it gives it the same URL, just adding an S after the HTTP, in which case the client reissues the query over on the secure side. And actually, if you do that, Google is very smart about that. It'll notice that that links it had are being now redirected permanently, and it'll go back and fix them uh, in its index. So uh, I think a lot of people are going to be wanting to do this uh, about six months from now, which is going to be great. Wow. Cool. All right. Question number two. Jim in Philadelphia suffering under corporate SSL interception. Hi, Stephen Leo. I'm a longtime listener, and I look forward to hearing the show each and every week. Recently, with the help of Steve's HTTPS fingerprints service, I discovered that my company is doing SSL interception of both our HTTP and HTTPS traffic. While I wasn't completely surprised to discover this, I was surprised that it was effective across the board. My banking information, my credit card data, my medical claims are all being decrypted, scanned, and analyzed before leaving our network. I understand the reasons for a company to put this process in place, but surely there must be boundaries. I feel like this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. If my understanding is correct, setting up a VPN would not help because they would just play man in the middle with that connection as well. Is there a way around this, or should I resign myself to never visiting these sites from my work computer? Thanks, and keep up the great work, Jim. Okay, so um, I'm seeing more and more people. No, I, I don't know if people are. I think it's probably uh, the awareness that we've created by talking about this problem on the podcast, and then giving people a, a quick means to check using the uh, HTTPS fingerprinting uh, service at GRC. Um, what that does is uh, GRC shows you the. The serial numbers of certificates out on the internet that that the GRC server sees, and then a user inside of a corporate network compares those to the certificates they're seeing, and they should be the same. Um, if they're not, then it, there's a very strong chance that essentially a a sanctioned man in the middle attack or like I don't want, really want to use the word attack because it's not an attack, but still a man-in-the-middle interception uh, is happening. Um, okay, so a VPN, if it worked, would almost certainly solve the problem, Jim. Um, this is the, the, the firewall that, the, that your corporation is using um, is intercepting HTTP traffic and generating certificates for for the sites you visit on the fly, um, doubtless your machine accepted in the past a certificate from the firewall, which allows, which essentially gives it permission to sign on behalf of 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 anyone it wants to, essentially, which is what makes this a little concerning and and frightening. Um, but. It's not able to do this with a VPN connection. The problem is that it may, that same technology is very likely 
unless it's explicitly permitted, blocking VPN connections. The good news is many VPN services have like a free trial offer. So you could certainly easily experiment with running a a VPN connection. Um, The way VPNs work is that uh, all of the commercial ones, you receive a certificate which your VPN client has and it is it is that certificate has been signed by the server but it is not using the regular public public key crypto system it's using it i mean it's using public key technology but not the infrastructure not the whole certificate authority hierarchy so you get the benefit of very good end to end authentication because you're using essentially private certificates but that means that it cannot be intercepted by regular SSL intercept uh, traffic interception. So it, it may be that the corporation is blocking VPNs as part of their overall security architecture. But if they're not, then you could absolutely use a VPN in order to essentially create your own tunnel through their firewall, bypassing all of this interception and getting out onto the internet, where then you would be you you'd then be able to use HTTPS through the VPN tunnel and get really good security that nobody was intercepting. All right, question number three. Rob Blair in Toronto knows that Mozilla re- removed the forced OCSP mode. And he says, hi, Stephen Leo. I'm running Firefox 33.1.1, and I just noticed that in my security settings, I no longer have an option for how I want to use OCSP. It used to, uh, to offer don't check, optional, and force. Now there's only a checkbox for whether to use it or not. Yikes. Any idea when or why this change was made? Thanks. Okay, so uh, I looked, and... I was already up to version 34 that I was just talking about at the top of the show. And sure enough, it's gone from the UI. He was using 33.1.1, which was the last prior version. Um, I didn't notice when it went away. Um, and, the you know, we, we saw this happening with Chrome. Um, now we're seeing something similar. Essentially, they're... I, I think that they're trying to simplify the user's experience. Um, the good news is the feature itself is not gone. When when I when we spent all of this time a few months back talking about uh, the whole uh, OCSP certificate revocation issue, many people who are Firefox users turned that on and reported. Okay, and so what that was doing is that was enforcing OCSP so that Firefox would only function if it if it affirmatively was able to verify that the certificate was still valid. Um, nobody, okay, I can't say nobody, but like 0.01 <laughs> to make up a number, like almost nobody ever had a problem. I'm running it. I'm I've got. I mean, I, as I said, I live in Firefox. No problem at all. So the thing to do is go to the famous, you know, smorgasbord settings page in Firefox. In the URL bar, you put about colon config. Instead of HTTPS colon, you put about colon. 
and then config, C-O-N-F-I-G, you'll end up with more settings than you have ever seen or imagined anything could have. So the good news is there's a search bar. Put in OCSP, and that reduces it. I'm looking at mine to one, two, three, four, five, six items. And the last one there is OCSP.required, and I see that it's still set for true. So because mine in, in my UI was you're going really you're going to want to put in at the top there in the search bar put in OCSP and it'll just whittle that craziness down there it is bang so i had left my firefox with that enabled even though they removed it from the ui they did not turn it off so good for them so there there's enabled and there's required as the last two items there and i've got mine still set for true in both cases. So they are honoring it. And anybody who still wants to enforce it, uh, if you were, if it was enforced by the UI checkbox before, then it has continued to be. And if you never got around to doing that, but you want to, unfortunately, they, they no, no longer made it easy. It's not in the UI, but it is in this crazy about colon config page uh, where you, you're easily able to set that to true uh, and it'll be sticky. So, Rob, it's still there, and you're still protected, and uh, I am too. So thanks for bringing that up. I'm glad to know that, that Mozilla didn't, uh, like, you know, turn it off for people who had it on when they removed it from the user interface. Fantastic. In just a sec, we're going to come back, and Steve's going to answer more of your questions. But first, let's take a break, and let's talk about backup. Uh, over my long career uh, dealing with f files and content and pictures and articles and all kinds of stuff. I've lost many files, and so if, everybody knows people have lost files. And uh, it's always because they made the biggest mistake you can make, which is not backing up. You have to back up. Of course, the only good backup is the one that actually happens and that is recoverable. And that's why Carbonite is such a fantastic service, because Carbonite backs up into the cloud. You don't have to do anything. Just installing Carbonite will almost certainly back up all the files that you want to have backed up. It's super automated, super easy to use. But then you can go in and tweak and fine-tune exactly what you want to back up, exactly what you don't want to back up, and it all just happens automatically. Carbonite has really affordable plans, so it's easy and it's affordable. And no matter how many computers you have, no matter where they're located – you can take care of your backups. I've been using uh, Carbonite, I think, now for three or four years. And in those three or four years, I haven't lost a single file, and I never worry about my backups. Of course, I've had problems. Of course, I can always restore thanks to Carbonite. It's super reliable and, again, super easy. And it's the ease of use that will make sure that you actually use it. And that's the best kind of backup, the one that actually happens. So start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. And use the code Security now, all one word, security now, and you'll get two free bonus months if you decide to buy. That's two free bonus months of Carbonite service. That's Carbonite.com, offer code security now, and you got to check it out. If you're not backing up, big mistake, security now. All right, Steve, we have question number four from Chris Haas in La Crosse, Wisconsin, who's wondering about the far future of CA expiration dates. He writes, hi, Steve and Leo. I really love watching the show and listening to Steve going into deep dives on subjects most people don't talk about until it's too late. I recently opened up my local Windows certificate manager, uh, that's certmanager.msc, and was surprised to see how many trusted root CAs I have 
uh, what I consider to be insanely far future expiration dates. GoDaddy and AOL. AOL, for instance, expire in 2037. And AOLs was created in 2002. If I get the, if it works today, it should also work tomorrow principle. But this is excessive. I know that they can be revoked, but still, someone had to consciously say, hey, don't worry, unless you hear something otherwise, just blindly trust us for the next quarter of a century. And someone at Microsoft said, yeah, we'll only patch Windows 8 for the next seven years, but that sounds like a good idea. Is this <laughs> not much of a, an issue? Okay, so really, uh, that's a great point. Um, the way to think about this, I think, is is sort of as a hierarchy of of uh, of levels of protection of certificates. So the the root CAs are assumed to be to, to have extremely good security. Uh, we've covered instances where they have unfortunately failed to demonstrate that but but the presumption is you know they're like security anchors they've, they've got really good security they've got their their the keys to the kingdom really well protected and for that reason they're they're willing to essentially they issued themselves certificates with this far expiration date you can understand the motivation for doing so because it's somewhat burdensome to get their certificate into every platform that needs to trust the certificates they sign. Now, probably we're seeing more of a historical, um, a, a, a sort of a historical bias because to, in this day and age, OS versions are changing. We've got on-the-fly updates. Uh, you know, they're, they're the whole connectivity means that, in fact, it would be not a huge deal for for CAs to have shorter-lived certificates that they themselves were replacing in all of the systems that need to trust them. But that's not the way the world is. The world still has really long life certificates. The danger is that their private key would get compromised. And I mean, that's, that's really the secret that they're keeping is the private key associated with the public key, um, which is part of the signature of, of their certificate. So what's happened is um, in uh, and this is maybe about ten years ago. It used to be that that the CAs were signing certificates with their root, and everyone got a little concerned because essentially that meant that their private key, that thing that is there, that they absolutely have to keep secret, because if they don't keep it secret, every browser will remove their certificate and every certificate, every customer certificate they've signed with that would be invalidated, creating a disaster. Um, so the danger was that that master secret that absolutely cannot be allowed to escape, that, has, that is, is being used every time they sign a certificate, meaning it has to come out to play. So, so this, the philosophy of like how to 
protect themselves changed and they created intermediate certificates so that today, for example, um, you don't see the end certificate of the server signed directly with the root. Instead, you'll see it signed with an intermediate certificate and that will have a much shorter expiration. Uh, when I saw the question, I thought, I wonder, you know, what Mozilla is doing. So I went over, I did HTTPS colon slash slash www.mozilla.org. Up came an EV certificate. I clicked the link. I saw that they, that Mozilla gets their certificate from my favorite uh, provider, DigiCert. And sure enough, there is a, the, the root certificate is 2037 and there is an intermediate that is 10 years, uh, that expires 10 years sooner than that. The idea being that now that the root has signed the intermediate, that inter and that intermediate has certificate signing authority, then the root can be literally stuck in a vault so that it never ha they, they never are endangering their root for for the, the 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 roots private key from escaping it only has to sign the intermediate certificate once where that certificate has itself certificate signing privileges then they lock the root away never to need it until they need to renew their intermediate certificate so that gives them much more safety the only thing that then could escape would be the intermediate certificate. And while that would not be good, it's way better because then none of the browsers would need to disavow the root certificate. Uh, they, they would just need to uh, get another, another server certificate signed with a new intermediate certificate. So anyway, that's the story. The, the, the roots do have long life under the presumption that the, the security of the CA is going to be extremely good. And the incentive is for it to be extremely good because literally the entire business model of the CA is banking on it. We, we discussed, I think it was DigiNotar um, years ago. They were found to uh, be uh, signing fraudulent certificates. They're now bankrupt. They were bankrupt instantly when because of their conduct in the handling of that leak. Um, so no certificate authority wants to allow that to happen. The, the, the use of this, this sort of three-stage chain allows them the, the ability both to have an anchor, which lives effectively forever, um, but at the same time not putting at risk by sort of moving to an intermediate certificate that they are able to, that has a, that has a shorter life um, because they only need to, you know, re-sign that with the master uh, every decade or so. Hmm. All right. Really well, cool system. Very, yeah. All right, question number five. Joshua in Michigan wonders how a student should safely report a vulner vulnerability. He writes, hello, Steve. I'm a huge fan of the show. I started taking classes in computer science when I was in the eighth grade, and I can say you've been a big part of my inspiration and interest in computer science and security. I'm contacting you because I found a security flaw in an online class that I'm taking. I'm still a high school student, but I'm taking an online Spanish class, so I have to, time to dual enroll and take computer science classes at my local university. In my computer science class, we've been working on it with web development, and I was curious 
as to what software my class was built on. So as I was expecting the source, I saw a CSV file. It was named a random number, so I was curious and downloaded the file. It was under the overview directory, so I thought it might be an outline of my assignments for the semester. But the file actually contains the grades for every student in my class. Wow. Obviously, this is a security flaw, and I know I should report it. The biggest concern is how I should go about reporting it. I've read about too many white hats who've gotten in trouble for responsibly reporting vulnerabilities. I'm still in the class right now, and I don't want it to affect my enrollment. If they dropped me from the class, I don't know how it would affect my grades, and I don't know how I'd be able to make it up. What do you think is the best way for me to go about reporting this? I looked on their website, and I couldn't find a logical place to report it either. I want to make sure that the issue is dealt with, so I don't just want to send it to their general sales query email. I really appreciate you looking into this. I know you're very busy, but I'm both conflicted and concerned about how to approach this, and I need some help. Thank you, Joshua. I thought that was uh, really interesting. Um, And first of all, Joshua was completely correct. Uh, I should I should mention that he used his full first and last name, and I removed his last name because <laughs> there's a lot of Joshua in Michigan, and we don't want you know, there's no need to narrow him down. Um, okay, so he's found a problem, and he's completely right that that unfortunately we we uh, as he knows from this podcast, we're often reporting on on unfortunately misinformed or poorly informed bureaucrats who you know blame the messenger shoot the messenger when they absolutely should not do so um here's what i would recommend and i spent a little time thinking about this first of all i think you have to go old school you don't want to do anything in email or pdf or electronic because it's just it leaves a trail. So I would I would create a short note that explains the problem and with enough technical detail that whoever is in charge of this will understand how you know, what it was you found and how to fix it. I would also print a copy of the CSV file. Um, that is to say, you also, you know, part of this note wants to get their attention. And if they see a printout of all the grades of this, of the class of the students in the class, that'll get their attention. Um, however, do not print it on any printer that you own because especially a laser printer, because unfortunately we know that printers are uh, the term is watermarking. They actually don't use water. They use yellow dots if they're color laser printers. Um, and they actually salt pages with yellow dots to identify the printer that has printed it. So I would say, you know, maybe create a PDF or just a Word doc or whatever, um, you know, whatever format you're comfortable with, um, and take it to a printing facility and pay cash uh, just to have, you know, like a Jiffy Quick or a, a FedEx uh, printer or uh, I can't think of the really famous one. We've always had one in, on the West Coast. Um, uh, Kinko's is, is the name I was trying to think of. Um, anyway, so get this printed on paper 
uh, fold it up, stick it in an envelope, and old school, address it to somebody who uh, is an authority and send it to them. Um, I think that's the best thing you can do. Uh, it, it will be anonymous. There will be no electronic trail that can be uh, traced back to you. Uh, they will get the information. They will believe what you've told them because right there will be a printout of the CSV. And I think that stands the greatest chance for getting this thing fixed and uh, for keeping you completely uh, free of, of any uh, you know, ridiculous claims of being a bad guy. And it's it's kind of a sad fact that an honest person trying to do the right thing has to yeah. be very careful and, and, and cover their tracks as if they were doing something wrong when, in fact, quite the opposite is the case. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and I mean, we see this over and over. People, you know, really get themselves in trouble just from just trying to say, look, I'm just trying to help you. All right, well, question number six. An anonymous listener in Sweden shares his chilling true story. Hi, Stephen Leo. Blah, 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 loving and using my Spinrite corporate license every week at work. A small story reminding you why you should keep, why you should back up every day. When I got to work this Monday, a support request came from my boss that had noted that he did not have any folders left in Outlook, only the standard folders, and all mail I had moved to the inbox and marked as unread. After some investigation, I noted, for a change, the trouble was not with his hard drive, so I couldn't just use Spinrite to save us again. The reason that all mail had moved was that someone had broken in through the RDP, the remote desktop protocol, and encrypted every office document and all Outlook files during the weekend, then left a ransom note, over 600 of them, one in every folder. So when Outlook started and did not find its standard PSD database file, it created a new one and re-downloaded all mail from the POP server, thus they are all unread. And would you know it, the back of my boss's machine had stopped silently a long time ago and no one noticed. So we have saved the encrypted files in case a time comes when the encryption can be broken, but we don't have much hope for that. The moral of the story is have Spinrite for recovery and verify your backups for when it's not the hard drive that crashes. Yeah, I thought this was interesting. I just wanted to give our uh, listeners a heads up about this form of attack. If this was in 600 different folders, it sounds like... This is some sort of an automated tool which is cracking through uh, RDP. If I had more time this morning, I would have dug into uh, RDP protocol because I do remember not long ago, in the last few months, there was a patch that fixed that, um, that that fixed a problem. It must then be that someone got into their network or that uh, that that RDP was exposed, it runs on a well-known port and it's not something you really want to have available out on the public internet. So, I mean, it's it's like the old days when servers used to have services running and all their ports exposed just by default and people were blocking the ones they, they didn't want to have access to or they didn't want to have uh, anyone outside the, the on the internet to have access to and we inverted that so that we're only allowing access to the ones we do want people to have for someone to be able to get from the outside to his boss's um, remote desktop protocol port is frightening in itself uh, so for what it's worth uh, there I'm sure there was a patch in the not too distant future uh, probably fixed what this 
this attacker found, was probably scanning for on the internet, found and then leveraged. So uh, make sure you don't have RDP exposed. It's too dangerous. Uh, and uh, yeah, and do verify that backups are actually happening. You know, we, we do hear stories about this from time to time where a backup system silently stops doing its work. You know, who knows why the medium fills up or it's generating errors to an email address that account that, that is changed and no one told the backup server to, you know, to, to update its, its, its reporting email. One, one reason or another, it doesn't happen. And then something, something collapses that absolutely was depending on there being a backup. So yikes. All right, Steve. Well, uh, I want to take a break and uh, talk about one of our sponsors, and we'll come back and answer some more questions in just a second. Uh, our third sponsor today is PagerDuty. What's PagerDuty? It's an operations platform that delivers visibility and actionable intelligence to help increase the uptime of your apps, servers, websites, and databases. If you rely on your software and services to always be up, PagerDuty is an essential tool. As the hub of your operations, PagerDuty connects all of your systems into a single view where you can see critical events across all of your monitoring tools. There are, there are over 100 ready-to-use integrations, and you can decrease your resolution time. With it. When an incident occurs, PagerDuty notifies the right team and member based on on-call schedules and personalized alerting preferences. If alerts are missed, PagerDuty will automatically escalate issues to another team member until it's responded to. Dispatch alerts by automated phone calls, SMS, email, and push notifications, and resolve incidents on the go so you can live your life, even if you're on call. Decrease the noise. Incidents are automatically filtered and deduplicated to ensure only actionable alerts are delivered. Get the right engineer on the right problem at the right time. Visit pagerduty.com twit to sign up for a free 14-day trial, and for as little as $19 a month, you can increase your uptime with PagerDuty. When you sign up, you'll also be entered for a chance to win a PagerDuty-exclusive on-call survival kit. That's pagerduty.com slash twit, and we thank PagerDuty for their support. Well, Steve, here comes the wild one. Jim M. in Northern Virginia provides us with the source of the name Regin. Am I saying that right, Steve? Is it Regin? You know, we, there was we, we didn't know. Uh, I was assuming it was because we. Uh, I was guessing it stood for registry installer <laughs> because that's the technology. Huh. Now we know what it stands for. You're about to tell us, okay. and technically, I guess if we were Norse, uh, we would know how to pronounce it. And we are not, and so we don't. Let's go with Regin. <laughs> so, Steve, in case you haven't seen in Norse mythology. Regin is a cunning dwarf who raises the hero Sigurd as his own son. I'm going to get all these wrong, I guarantee it. As his own son in order to use him as an instrument of revenge against Regin's deceitful brother, Fafnir. Having become a dragon after stealing the family's hoard of gold, Fafnir is killed by Sigurd, who then goes on to kill Regin when he learns that his adopted father used him to avenge his brother's crime. Now the old Norse... Dwarf is a second is it has a second life as a newly discovered highly advanced piece of malware TechSpeak for software used to damage or infiltrate computers. So anyway, uh, uh, Jim provides a link on uh, to a blog at foreignpolicy.com where it explains this. And uh, so yeah, we we were fumbling around with the name last week, not knowing what to use. Uh, now, if we, if anyone knows. Uh, at least we have we know where it came from. Um, I did want to mention that 
um, there's still no confirmation, but th- there's very, very strong rumor, which has not been confirmed, that as we suspected, uh, that the NSA and also, also the UK intelligence services were probably using this. Uh, more disturbing is, and again, no firm confirmation, but that the AV companies have been aware of this for years and assumed it was Western state uh, espionage malware and kept quiet about it, which, if true, would be disturbing because it would say, you know, that they understood that this malware existed, that nobody wanted it in their machine, but they were essentially being complicit with the spooks who had developed and deployed this and weren't pointing at it because that would, of course, render it useless. So, again, no confirmation of any of that. So we just have to call that gossip, and I don't like to do gossip, but uh, it's. I think it's necessary to share you know, what the rumor mill is churning. Yes. And uh, again, if you know the pronunciation, please help us out. We need it on Tech News Today as well. We don't know what to call this thing. Uh, it's a Norse dwarf. we got to call it something. Joseph Laba in West Bloomingfield, Michigan, wondered about CryptoLink. Hi, Steve. Just wondering, with the cessation of TrueCrypt support, is there any chance that CryptoLink might be revived? I'm somewhat familiar with its history and why it was shelved, but... Haven't the successes of TrueCrypt, LastPass, and other TNO systems demonstrated that it's feasible to do it without sacrificing any principles or convictions? Thanks, longtime listener and SpinRight owner, Joe. Okay, so just to recap, um, CryptoLink is a project I spent uh, some a good deal of time, actually, a couple of years ago, uh, specking out and designing. The idea would, of, behind CryptoLink was that it was trust no one, it had a whole bunch of features which to me seem like any VPN ought to have them, but none of them do, uh, which would ultimately mean that you would always be able to succeed in establishing a connection. Um, and there were just a whole bunch of other neat things about it. The plan at the time was that I would in- invest a huge amount of time creating another commercial product for GRC uh, to, to go along with SpinRite. Um, then I saw the handwriting on the wall of what's happening with our intelligence agencies, and it felt to me like we were approaching a time when, when trust no one, irreversible encryption solutions could actually become illegal. And, in fact, there was a story just today, um, and I can't remember the context of it. Uh, it was, it was uh, there was an old uh, 18th century law, something about writs, which courts have just started to use to, to uh, that is, the federal government is starting to use a writ in, uh, or to have judges uh, issue them as a new way of forcing companies to decrypt phones, like forcing Apple to decrypt their iPhone and so forth. Um, clearly, we're, we're, at a, we're reaching a tipping point where we're going to find out what 
individual privacy rights are. Apple famously with iOS 8 has deliberately designed a system that that they are asserting they are unable to decrypt. And the NSA lead, uh, the, the new head of the NSA, has unfortunately said that Apple is marketing their technology to, you know, pedophiles and and uh, organized crime and so forth. I mean, way over the top rhetoric, but that's what this has come to. So, so here's where I stand. Um, I'm busy finishing Squirrel. Then I am busy finishing Spinrite 6.1 uh, and 6.2, which will add support for USB features uh, and, and push Spinrite a little bit further. I want to get 6.1 out without delaying it uh, for the work I want to do for 6.2. At that point, we'll see where we stand. Uh, I don't think I will ever do CryptoLink as a commercial product, but if I always plan for it to be freeware, then I won't mind if I just have to... Uh, I, mean, I don't know where I would stand. I, I, I guess if I'm not selling it, if I just put it out into the world, then it's freeware and people can use it and I, you know, we'll just have to see. Uh, I, I, maybe we will have something definitive by then where we decide that it is going to be safe for companies to create encryption, which is unbreakable. Uh, right now, I think that's still up in the air. And so crypto, where I am with CryptoLink is up in the air because the only way I would do it if it was unbreakable, there'd just be no point in doing, uh, you know, a brand new VPN. I mean, I, well, I just wouldn't do it if, if I had to, you know, make it, if I had to put a back door in for, the, for, for, the, for anyone. All right. Well, question number nine. Russell Gad, Russell Gad in the UK offers a terrific tip about determining what computer or tablet to buy. Steve, one of the lurkers in your news groups, Neil Hutton, is a techie who fixes people's PCs. He has created an excellent website advising ordinary folks what to buy to avoid malware, PCs, tablets, etc., mainly avoiding Windows. It would merit a mention on Security Now. Okay, so I went there, and I am very impressed. The URL is howtoreplaceyourpc.com. So, and I, I want to commend this, maybe not to our listeners, because they probably already know, but to their family members. Unfortunately, we just missed Thanksgiving, because this would have been a perfect time <laughs> for, for you to print this on everyone's napkins uh, when, when your family convened. But we do have Christmas coming up. Howtoreplaceyourpc.com. I am very impressed. Um, I, I like the style. I like the design. Uh, it, it's funny because, you know, there's as much, it, it's, it's organized correctly. There's as much there for digging as deeply as you want. He, exp- he says, you know, he's going to, his job is dealing with people's PCs of all makes and models that are broken. And he says, okay, if you absolutely don't have any time to spend, get a MacBook Air, period. But if you don't, you know, and so, you know, if you're unwilling to go any further for advice, do that. If you, but you may not find that it fits as well as what you could learn about if you dig a little deeper at this site. 
So anyway, as I said, I, I'm very impressed. How to replace your PC.com. Um, this is for, you know, our, our, all, all of the relatives and friends and family who, who ask us these questions. Uh, just tell them, go here and you'll be able to help yourself. Because uh, I think uh, this guy, uh, Neil Hutton, has done just a beautiful job. Wonderful. Uh, and now, a quick bit of advice. Now, he mentioned that if you don't know what else to say, just go for the MacBook Air. Wouldn't you think that uh, for avoiding problems, uh, a Chromebook would even be better than a MacBook Air? Yeah, I, I, I didn't have enough time to spend on his site because I just, again, encountered this during my read through my mailbag this morning, preparing the notes for the podcast. I agree with you, and I'll bet you he even even says that. The question would be that people would probably maybe run into things it won't do. And so the advantage of the MacBook Air is, of course, you're... Okay, okay first, nothing does everything to the degree that Windows does. But at the same time, nothing is more dangerous than Windows. For example, the malware, Regin, or whatever it's called that we were just talking about, that's Windows-only malware. So if you have a Mac, Regin can't get you. And, you know, most of the malware that is out in the world is Windows. So so that, so I think there's a, you know, like a, 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 a set of stages where you back away from being able to do absolutely everything you could ever want but also having absolutely maximum exposure to malware, you step back a notch to the Mac. You're going, there are going to be some things that you run across that are Windows only. The good news is much more things now are also available on the Mac or probably a version or a, a solution that does the same thing for the Mac. Um, and you're, 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 the level of danger you have is backed off. But for example, and I'll, I'll bet you he covers this, if... As, as, as you certainly know this, Mike, if all your f- grandmother is doing is baking cookies and surfing the net and doing email and she uses Gmail, um, yeah, a Chromebook would be absolutely, first of all, much less expensive and sufficient. So, and I think that's what this site does. The idea is it carefully matches your needs so you're not spending more money than you need to. You're not buying capability that is going to be unused and will only end up getting you in trouble. All right. Sounds like a great, great site. Can't wait to check it out myself. The last question, uh, Bruce Klippenstein in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, wonders about the Security Now show notes. He writes, I have noticed that the links to the show notes are almost always seem to go to a blank wiki page. Are the note, Are the show notes only posted for some episodes or is it or is there somewhere else I should be looking for the show notes? Thanks. Okay. So um, I don't know what – well, okay, I do know what it is. It's that I've been referring much more heavily during the podcast to links in the show notes. Um, the show notes are what I'm looking at right now. And, Mike, what you're looking at, what Leo was always looking at, um, they're always at GRC. However – the podcast that Twit publishes has up until now just linked to a blank wiki page, which, you know, hasn't been what we should be have been doing. I just sent email because 
I must have encountered like one out of every two pieces of email in the mailbag where people saying, where are the show notes? You keep talking about the show notes, but I click on it and it's a blank wiki page. So I've just asked the producers to start using the GRC URL in the podcast feed. So from this podcast, 484 on, hopefully they will do that. If if it turns out that you still get the twit.tv link, GRC always has them. I tweet them at the beginning of the show. They always exist because it's what we run the, this podcast from. And the entire history of them is on GRC. So if you go to grc.com slash sn, that's the Security Now page. The third icon is, the, so the first icon is the high bandwidth audio. Second icon is the audio I, I recompress for Elaine at quarter, the, at quarter the bit rate at 16 kilobits. The third icon is the show notes. That's a PDF of, with all of this stuff and clickable links. So you can always find them there. But I, I bet you now that having finally uh, thought to bring this to the attention of the fabulous producers over there in Twitland, that the, 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 you know, the link to GRC's notes will now be in the podcast feed. So, Bruce, Bryce, thanks for mentioning it. Everybody else who, <laughs> who asked the same question, I saw you all, and it finally you know, got me to ask Twit to fix this. So uh, I think we're going to be okay now. Fantastic. Well, uh, Steve, how do you end the show? I, um, do we uh, do we have any final comments? Uh, any other uh, sort of? <laughs> we just tell we just tell people that uh, you can f uh, find the podcast in their podcast feeds. Yep. Uh, that they're at twit.tv slash sn. Yep. Uh, that I have. Uh, oh, that also Elaine transcribes them. So text versions for. Uh, those who want to follow, who want to read along are at grc.com slash sn and the 16 kilobit quarter size ones for those who are, as Leo puts it, bandwidth impaired are, are also available at grc.com. And that next week we're going to be doing a, a deep dive. Unless, I mean, the world could, you know, the sky could fall. Hopefully the bad guys are taking the holidays off. So maybe nothing bad will happen in the meantime. Assuming that nothing comes in to intervene, we're going to do a deep dive next week into the technology that has been you developed and confirmed for de-anonymizing Tor users who are specifically using Tor because it's an anonymizing service. Uh, and we're probably going to call the podcast Detour. Uh, that's fantastic. And, of course, uh, Steve and Leo do security now at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC, every Tuesday right here on the Twit Network. Don't miss it. Steve, thank you for tolerating my uh, amateurish uh, hosting, uh, co-hosting of this show. Uh, it's been yeah, a you did thrill. A, you did a great job. And well, thank you for filling in. Well, thank you so much, Steve. And, uh, again, uh, I can't wait for that uh, next week's uh, issue. I'm really, really curious about that. Uh, it's really one of the most fascinating stories of the year, in my opinion. So I'm looking forward to that. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for uh, tuning in. And you can tune in for Security Now again next week on Tuesday.